is up, y'all. Hopefully y'all are having a good, long three-day weekend. I figured what better way to close out the holiday weekend than to give y'all a quick little episode on Martin Luther King Jr. himself. Hopefully we all know at least a little bit about him, why we have the day off, but I'm going to go into some of the more interesting aspects of him and then also close it off with some of my favorite quotes of his. Some of them I'm sure we have all heard before, but I think that they're always good refreshers. You maybe haven't heard them in a while since you were in school or whatever. And then I also have some new ones that I feel like are not quite as popular, but I think that they should be more popular. So let's just start right off the bat with a quick little Cliff Notes refresher for y'all. Um, So MLK Jr. was an American Baptist minister and activist, one of the most prominent leaders in the civil rights movement from 1955 until his assassination in 1968. Martin Luther King Jr. advanced civil rights for people of color in the United States through nonviolence and civil disobedience. That was his whole thing. I've got a bunch of really good quotes on how he feels about racial tensions and violence at the end. Um, he was inspired by Christian beliefs and the nonviolent activism of Mahatma Gandhi. He led targeted nonviolent resistance against Jim Crow laws and other forms of discrimination. He was huge on marches. Um, he led marches for the right to vote, desegregation, labor rights, and other civil rights. He oversaw the 1955 Montgomery bus boycott. Later, he became the first president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And then as president of that, he led the unsuccessful Albany movement in Albany, Georgia. He also helped organize some of the nonviolent 1963 protests in Birmingham, Alabama. King was one of the leaders of the 1963 March on Washington, where he delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. It's a beautiful setup. I highly recommend if you guys are ever in the D.C. area on the East Coast, go check it out. The Civil Rights Movement achieved pivotal legislative gains in the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Voting Rights Act in 1965, and the Fair Housing Act of 1968. Now, he was not actually born as Martin Luther King Jr. His official birth name was actually Michael Luther King Jr. But in 1934, so just a few years, he was five years old, His father was a pastor at a Baptist church in Atlanta, and he had traveled to Germany, and he became very inspired by the Protestant Reformation leader Martin Luther. And as a result, King Sr. changed his own name as well as that of his five-year-old son. And that's how we have Martin Luther King Jr. today. Also, interestingly enough, his the holiday is supposed to be for his birthday, right? But his birthday is January 15th which in 1929, when he was born, that was on a Tuesday, we have this kind of silly, insignificant law um, called the Uniform Monday Holiday Act, just to make dates consistent that holidays are on a Monday. And so that's why it is always celebrated on a Monday and not on his actual birthday. The earliest it can be is January 15th. The latest it can be in the month is January 21st, but it is always celebrated on the third Monday of January every year. And the holiday actually technically replaced Civil Rights Day, but that didn't come for a while after after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. So 
The campaign for an actual federal holiday to celebrate his birthday started basically immediately after his assassination in 1968. So right after his death, a Democratic representative from Michigan and a Republican from Massachusetts introduced a bill to Congress to make his birthday a national holiday. And the bill first came to a vote in the House of Representatives in 1979, so that's already a good chunk of time after his assassination, but it fell short by five votes. Some elected officials claimed that, quote, a holiday to honor a private citizen would be contrary to long-standing tradition, um, which is technically true in a way. There's only two other figures that have national holidays in the United States, and that's George Washington and Christopher Columbus. Another rejection reason was good old capitalism. So a paid holiday for federal employees would be too expensive. Um, President Ronald Reagan finally signed the holiday into law in 1983, but it was first observed three years later on January 20th, 1986. I don't personally understand that three-year gap, but apparently American politics is beyond me. Uh, Many states initially resisted the observance because of political beliefs. Um, Some states like Arizona rejected it because he was not a president or an elected public official. Other states just hid it behind alternative names or they combined it with other holidays. It wasn't officially observed by all 50 states until 2000, which is insane to me. Blows my mind. But one of his biggest accomplishments, or at least acknowledgments of his accomplishments, I think would be him earning the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964. Um... If you really boil down what exactly he's remembered for and what makes him like such a great icon and a, a world leader was his nonviolent resistance to achieve equal rights for African Americans. And ultimately, that's what earned him the Nobel Peace Prize. He was only 35 years old when he earned the Nobel Peace Prize, and that makes him the youngest man to receive it. Now, unfortunately... In America, we can't have nice things, so on the evening of April 4th, 1968, while standing on the balcony of his motel room in Memphis, Tennessee, where he was supposed to lead a protest march for um, some union strikes, uh, he was assassinated by James Earl Ray, an escaped American convict. Now, this was not the first assassination attempt or threat on Martin Luther King Jr., but this one, I feel like maybe I, I very well, probably more likely, I'm going into a rabbit hole of U.S. conspiracy theories here, but you know what? We're along for the ride. So I feel like there's maybe a little bit more than meets the eye with this assassination. Now, he was assassinated April of 1968. James Earl Ray was not arrested until June 8th, 1968. He was arrested in London, England, and charged with the assassination of the civil rights leader, MLK Jr. Now, I think what kind of tips me off to the fact that there might be more to this than just what we present in textbooks in school, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read just the backstory, and you tell me if it sounds just, if anything sounds a little bit familiar, like something we have heard before in political history in the United States. 
King was fatally wounded by a sniper's bullet while standing on a balcony outside his second-story room at the Motel Lorraine. That evening, a Remington .30-06 hunting rifle was found on the sidewalk besides a rooming house one block from the Lorraine Motel. During the next several weeks, the rifle, according to eyewitness reports, and fingerprints on the weapon all implicated a single suspect, escaped convict James Earl Ray. A two-bit criminal, Ray escaped a Missouri prison in April 1967 while serving a sentence for a holdup. In May 1968, a massive manhunt for Ray began. The FBI eventually determined that he had obtained a Canadian passport under a false identity, which at the time was, of course, relatively easy. On June 8th, Scotland Yard investigators arrested Ray at a London airport. So apparently we had Sherlock Holmes on the case. Ray was trying to fly to Belgium with the eventual goal he later admitted of reaching Rhodesia. Rhodesia, now called Zimbabwe, was at the time ruled by an oppressive and internationally condemned white minority government. Extradited to the United States, Ray stood before a Memphis judge in March of 1969 and pleaded guilty to King's murder in order to avoid the electric chair. He was sentenced to 99 years in prison. Three days later, he attempted to withdraw his guilty plea, claiming he was innocent of King's assassination and had been set up as a patsy in a larger conspiracy. He claimed that in 1967, a mysterious man named Raoul had approached him and recruited him into a gun-running enterprise. On April 4th, 1968, however, he realized that he was to be the fall guy for the King assassination and fled for Canada. Ray's motion was denied, as were his dozens of other requests for a trial during the next 29 years. During the 1990s, the widow and children of Martin Luther King Jr. spoke publicly in support of Ray and his claims, calling him innocent and speculating about an assassination conspiracy involving the U.S. government and military. U.S. authorities were in conspiracist minds implicated circumstantially. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover obsessed over King, who he thought was under communist influence. For the last six years of his life, King underwent constant wiretapping and harassment by the FBI. Before his death, Dr. King was also monitored by U.S. military intelligence, who may have been called to watch over King after he publicly denounced the Vietnam War in 1967. Furthermore, by calling for radical economic reforms in 1968, including guaranteed annual incomes for all, King was making few new friends in the Cold War-era U.S. government. Over the years, the assassination has been re-examined by the House Select Committee on Assassinations, the Shelby County, Tennessee, District Attorney's Office, and three times by the U.S. Justice Department. All of these investigations have ended with the same conclusion, James Earl Ray killing Martin Luther King Jr. The House Committee acknowledged that a low-level conspiracy might have existed involving one or more accomplices to Ray, but uncovered no evidence to definitively prove this theory. In addition to the mountain of evidence against him, such as his fingerprints on the murder weapon and admitted presence at the rooming house on April 4th, Ray had a definite motive in assassinating King, hatred. According to his family and friends, he was an outspoken racist who told them of his intent to kill King. Ray died in 1998. So, that is that. I will leave y'all 
to your own interpretations of that and any patterns you may or may not see. I just always think stuff like that is hella interesting. I think that the king's family role was very interesting in this because um, the fact that they also believed that Ray was innocent, I think is very, very interesting. And his assassination in 1968 was one of the four major assassinations in the 60s within the United States. So it was uh, several years after JFK in 1963, then we had the assassination of Malcolm X in 65, and then two months before the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy in June of 1968. And like I said in the beginning, this was not the first assassination attempt on his life or his first run-in with death, essentially. As early as the mid-1950s, he was receiving death threats because of his activism within the civil rights movements. Um, and he was, he had always said, because like I said, he was known for nonviolence, right? And so he was always saying that murder could not stop the struggle for equal rights. After the assassination of President JFK in 1963, he had told his wife, Coretta Scott King, this is what is going to happen to me also. Quote, I keep telling you this is a sick society. This will happen to me as well. Unquote. So it's heartbreaking that it, that it had to come to that. But speaking of his life and his wife, Coretta Scott King, there was actually um, this last Friday, they released uh, or unveiled, I guess, the new statue in Boston that was meant to honor uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and his wife, Coretta Scott King. It's massive. It's like this uh, 20-foot tall, 40-foot wide embrace statue. Um, I guess it was this like bronze or something. And it's based off of a picture of them, which was actually, it's so sad, because the picture is them embracing right after he found out that he got a Nobel Peace Prize. And it's just them hugging each other. And the statue is just four arms and like the hands embracing one another, but there's no body, there's no head. So unfortunately, it is getting a lot of mixed reviews because it does not really look like an embrace at all and it sucks because you know you know this shit was expensive and you know the artist Hank Willis Thomas you know they probably spent so much time designing this and then getting approval for this and then actually making this and then installing it all of the things that go into you know a massive monument for Martin Luther King like this and but it's kind of it's not even that it's ugly it's like here's the thing it looks like a giant pee pee is the issue it looks like hands holding a massive penis so obviously that was not received very well um some people are going as far they're saying like this is hideous this is disrespectful um this resembles a sex act, and one, uh, this community organizer in Oakland and a cousin of Scott King told CNN that the statue was insulting to his family. Um, 
He said, quote, you, if you can look at it from all angles and it's probably two people hugging each other, it's four hands. It's not the missing heads. That's the atrocity that other people clamp onto that. It's a stump that looks like a penis. That's a joke, unquote. So, yes. Um, the son, Martin Luther King III, said on Monday that he was grateful to be able to see a statue representing his parents' love story in their partnership. Um, he told CNN that he liked it. He said, I think it's a huge representation of bringing people together. I think the artist did a great job. I'm satisfied. Yeah, it didn't have my mom and dad's images, but it represents something that brings people together. And in this time, day and age, when there's so much division, we need symbols that talk about bringing us together. So good for him. I, I see the son is just as wholesome as the dad was. That's great. But yeah, I feel bad because it's like I want to like it, you know, and it's just quite unfortunate. I want to know all of the people that looked at that and said like, yep, this is a good idea. That saw the drafts, the mock-ups, the design outlines, and they're like, yep, this is a keeper. This is, this is the one. That's what I, that's what I want to know. But... As I'm wrapping this up, I promised y'all quotes, so you know I will deliver. Here are some of my favorite ones that are very, very common and very popular. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. Faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. Life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. There comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe nor politic nor popular, but he must take it because conscience tells him it is right. True peace is not merely the absence of tension, it is the presence of justice. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Now, these quotes are amazing, right? They challenge social perspectives of the greater good and our personal, individual responsibility to stand up for what we believe is right. And these quotes are very common. Like I said, the, the I have a dream speech, it's very common. What often gets left out, though, is his thoughts on capitalism, military powers. So I found some of those quotes today that I want to share with y'all. This is from his Revolution of Values in 1967. When machines and computers, profit motives, and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, extreme materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. This one is from his Three Evils of Society, also 1967. The fact is that capitalism was built on the exploitation and suffering of black slaves and continues to thrive on the exploitation of the poor, both black and white, both here and abroad. So, 
I mean, if you kind of look at how many sweatshops are still open, blows my mind. But you know what? We allow it because, actually, I don't know why we allow it, but honestly, I don't really know how to fix that. So, next quote. A nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. This is from Beyond Vietnam, 1967. Couldn't agree more. Can't say much more on that. The problems of racial injustice and economic injustice cannot be solved without a radical redistribution of political and economic power. That's also from his The Three Evils of Society. Oh, Marshmallow likes that one. He supports that one. He said that's his favorite. This one is from Letter from a Birmingham Jail in 1963, so a little bit earlier than the other quotes. And this is the one where he was talking about shallow understanding from people of goodwill, yada yada. But then he continues on to say, lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. And I love that one so much. Oh, it's just, it's so good. And this one too is kind of throwback to my episode on homelessness, because you all know how I feel about how we treat the homeless community. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. I mean, there's a reason why he's the king, you know? It's just so good. Loose and easy language about equality, resonant resolutions about brotherhood fall pleasantly on the ear But for the Negro, there is a credibility gap he cannot overlook. He remembers that with each modest advance, the white population promptly raises the argument that the Negro has come far enough. Each step forward accents an ever-present tendency to backlash. That was from Where Do We Go From Here in 1967. This is another quote from that same publication. Why is equality so assiduously avoided? Why does white America delude itself, and how does it rationalize the evil it retains? And then this one I love so, so, so much. I know I've talked about this before with the Black Lives Movement um, and how we twisted that entire narrative, but here's the quote. I think that we've got to see that a riot is the language of the unheard. And what is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the economic plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. That was from a 60 Minutes interview in 1966. So if y'all have some free time, if you want to, I highly recommend actually look at some of his speeches Like, actually read his entire I Have a Dream speech. Look at some of these publications that he put out, The Three Evils of Society or Letters from a Birmingham Jail. Any of those, right? Any of the things that he's put out, any of the publications. Actually read them. They are so excellent. And they are still, unfortunately, so applicable today. I love love them so much. But, yes, That is just a little snippet on Martin Luther King Jr., why we celebrate him as a holiday, and hopefully y'all learned something today. Hopefully you take some of his words to heart, 
and you can apply them to your lives. And I hope y'all are out there making good choices, being a decent human being, making Martin Luther King Jr. proud. And I will catch y'all next week. Okay, bye!